Hey, it's Jed Hearn, host of Wizards, Warriors, and Words. If you're enjoying the writing advice on this show, you might like my new podcast, The Jed Hearn Show, where every week I share the best fantasy writing advice that I've learned from publishing three fantasy novels and a best-selling video game. There's over 12 episodes that you can listen to right away, including my top 10 fantasy books of all time, how to make fantasy names that don't suck, two rules that make writing effortless, and my complete summaries of Brandon Sanderson's and Neil Gaiman's writing classes, and much more. Check it out by searching for The Jed Hearn Show in your podcast app. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You know, sometimes I hear people talk about, you know, I like the characters, but I didn't like the setting. So this is a bad book. To me, it's like if the characters are good, then it's a good book. You know, the plot, the setting, all those things, they're all important, but the characters are the fundamental thing. So I can't believe that we made this happen, but we somehow managed to get an interview with Joe Abercrombie, author of... This book right here, The Wisdom of Crowds, which I think is the end to the best epic fantasy trilogy I've ever read, The Age of Madness. Joe has been one of my favorite authors for years and years. I've probably read about 12 of his books. I would put him in my top two. It's Joe Abercrombie and Brandon Sanderson for me. And depending on whose book I read last, that's usually the one that's at the top of my list. So being able to chat with Joe on this episode was an absolute blast. It's probably the most nervous I've been in like, 100 plus episodes of recording the podcast. Um, and we got him on for two episodes. So if you enjoy this one, he'll be back in next week's episode as well. So make sure to subscribe. And if you enjoy this episode, please go ahead and share it around with some other people who are into Joe Abercrombie's books. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Wizards, Worries and Words, a fantasy writing advice podcast. I'm Jed Hearn, author of The Thunder Heist, and I'm joined by my fellow writers, starting with Michael R. Fletcher. Uh, hi, that's me, Michael R. Fletcher, author of Beyond Redemption and some other stuff. Rob J. Hayes. Hello, I'm Rob J. Hayes. I'm the author of many books. Many books. Dirk Ashton. I am Dirk Ashton, author of the Paternus Trilogy. Look, I have props this week. Nice. And we are joined by a very special guest, the one and only Joe Abercrombie. Joe, welcome to the show. Hello. It's an absolute honor for you to have me here. <laughs> Absolutely. And for the three people who don't know about yourself and your books, do you want to just briefly uh, give a little spiel about yourself? Oh, those poor, poor, sad three people. But no, they are, they are lucky three people, for they have the joy of discovering my work, don't they? I uh, wrote the First Law Trilogy and some other books in that universe and the Shattered Sea trilogy, and a few other bits and pieces. Edgy fantasy in it. Yeah. A bit, a bit. Yeah. Character-based, character-focused, and gritty, I guess. Lots of grit. <laughs> and we love the grit. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. I um, yeah, thought the way we could kind of structure this, as we sort of mentioned off air, first episode, we'll just sort of generally throw out some questions at you. We'll try to hopefully ask you stuff that you haven't been asked a million times before. And mm. then potentially in the second episode, we can deep dive into a topic that we sort of maybe bring up in this. But it's interesting that you mentioned characters because I wanted to ask you, how do you think you're able to so quickly establish rapport between readers and your characters? I think the moment for me where I really like sat up and started paying attention when I was reading one of your books was the chapter in The Heroes where for 200 pages, you've been with all these other different characters. And then it's the big battle scene that is sort of halfway through the book where you just start in the head of a totally unknown character who you have never been in their perspective before. And in the space of three pages, you made me care so much about that character only to brutally murder him like a hundred words later. And then you just like kept repeating the trick. And I, I couldn't understand how you're able to do it every single time. And I just wanted to know, like, how do you think you're able to so quickly establish that like uh, reason to care about these characters who sometimes are just sort of, you know, throw away just there for one chapter or so? Well, yeah, nice I like to, to try a nice easy one. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's dig into the absolute fundamental essence of what makes writing interesting or not and explain <laughs> to us how that works. Correct. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess I, I sort of feel like, you know, characters are the most important part of a book. You know, sometimes I hear people talk about, you know, I like the characters, but I didn't like the setting. So this is a bad book. To me, it's like if the characters are good, then it's a good book. Mm. You know, the plot, the setting, all those things, they're all important, but the characters are the fundamental thing. What I respond to is the characters, the dialogue, and the kind of internal voice, the authorial voice. That's really what I'm interested in when I read a book. I want to, I want someone to talk to me in a way I've never heard before, in a way that I never could. You know, I want, it's writing that I couldn't do myself, that I want from someone else. You know, I don't want to hear stuff that's the same as everybody else. Um, and so... When I try to write myself, I guess that's pretty much what I'm aiming for, to, for the writing to kind of pop off the page and have a voice and a, and a clear identity right from the start and to feel like you're being talked to by the person whose point of view you're in. You know, I, I read books like James Elroy's L.A. Quartet when I was younger, and in that, that's the approach he takes. You know, every character has a, almost, it feels like four different books that are intercut if he's writing from four different points of view. Um, How's it done? That's difficult to answer because generally I like to try and take all the magical thinking out of writing as much as I can because if you have this magical thinking about writing, that writing is some special, special magical thing, then there'll be days when you can't do it and you have nothing to fall back on. You know, the magic either happens or it doesn't. And most of professional writing is finding ways to make progress when the magic isn't happening, I find. And mm. so trying to take the magic out of it and treat it as mundane bricklaying is kind of sensible and healthy, I find. Um, but having said that, there is an element of magic with characters. You never really know what's going to work and what's not until you start writing from their point of view, until you start you know, doing conversations and, and really just seeing how it feels on the page. You know, you can prepare very thoroughly and have an idea of their role in the plot and their background and all those things. But until you start writing, it's hard to know whether they kind of really come alive or not. 
and some just work instantly for reasons I still don't really understand. And some take huge amounts of effort to get not quite as good as the ones that work with no effort. And I don't really know why that is. I wish I did. There's many kinds of tricks and things I've, I've developed over time to try and make them work better. But I kind of don't have that answer. I mean, the specific, there is none. No, there isn't one. The, the specific kind of scene you were talking about, which was, you know, this, this idea I kind of hit upon, stole really from other people mostly. I guess it's a filmic thing perhaps more than it's a novelistic thing generally. But, you know, following one character, then you, you for a little while, then you quickly move on to another character and then quickly to another and so on. That kind of works well for me because... I think I am, you know, reasonably good at getting a a sense of a character quite quickly. With, with when you do that and they die within a few hundred p- words, you don't have to pay it off, which is the difficult part. You can just kind of set them up, then kill them, and then move on to the next one and set them up. So it's kind of fun for me to just set up ten characters in a row and never have to do anything with them. <laughs> That's sort of my ideal writing situation. Um, I suppose it. <sighs> There's no trick, really. You kind of just try and put yourself in the shoes of that character. And you think, what are their concerns? What are their feelings? You don't worry about describing the world. You worry about how they experience the world. What are they thinking about? What makes them individual? Sometimes you use, a lot of that's instinctive, but sometimes you kind of use things like Pharaoh in the first law, is colorblind she never sees any colors so nothing's described in color it's all dark or light or black or white and the way she sees the world is very black and white morally as well so that all kind of suits you know she tends to be written in kind of paragraphs of the punchline like paragraph longer paragraph shorter paragraph longer paragraph shorter paragraph she kind of thinks in these staccato punchlines and so on so there's a sort of work you can do on the rhythm of the writing on what senses are emphasized on what things are emphasized if it's a kind of canny political operator are they looking at the details of how someone you know behaves and talks and try to draw inferences from that and gain advantage from that compared to someone who is self-obsessed and would never notice what someone else is doing they're just thinking about what they'll get out of it you know so you're trying to just put yourself in the shoes of the character and write from their point of view really if that makes sense absolutely i don't know it does well done Thank one, you. <laughs> one thing that I uh, that I that I completely stole um, was how very often, not always, but very often, you'll begin begin a chapter or a new section with a new character with either an inner thought or a line of dialogue. Um, mm. And um, I found that to be extremely effective in getting a chapter going because. Or a section going because often it's like, okay, do I say what kind of day it is and what the weather is like? Do I describe the setting? Do I describe, sometimes I'll describe what they're looking at, watching their feet plod along in the mud. And then a thought comes in, but, uh, that, uh, that is an easy way for me to start. I can always go back and fix it. One of the other things I heard you saw you say early, early on probably back in 2015 or something was uh, when you said, just, just vomit it on the table. You can clean it up later. And that helped. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Quite a bit. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of it's in the editing as well. That's another thing I perhaps should have said is that, you know, I, I sort of feel coming right in the first draft is is the start of the, when you've got the first draft, that's when the work starts. You know, I mean, the first draft is hard, but I, I feel like the book comes together in the revision and, you know, you cut away what's not relevant and you emphasize what is relevant and you maybe hit upon these kind of repeated motifs that give a character some personality and speak to who they are you know, and emphasize those things and cut other things away and, and just, you know, hopefully the voices become more and more defined over time. So the editing's the editing's certainly important. Definitely vomit it out, get something on the page and then, you know, see how you can improve it later is always always sensible, I think. Rewriter. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. And I mean you said you talked bit. about starting with dialogue. Sorry. No, go ahead. I, I was just gonna say, you know, Starting with dialogue and so on, I mean, I think in terms of cutting, just never write stuff that you find boring, you know, or write it, but then cut it. You know, <laughs> if the reader's bored, if you're bored, how can the reader not be bored? So, yes, you know, if, if the introduction of the room, you know, the man steps into the room and you describe the room, like, who, who gives a shit? <laughs> generally, generally the room is not that important, but you can come to that later, you know, so... Something that's arresting, something that speaks to character on purpose and moves the rhythm forward, you know. I worked as an editor for quite a long time, a, a video editor, TV and stuff. And when you kind of move, you know, when, when you're editing, you'll cut on action. You'll cut out of a scene and into a scene on action and movement and sound and, you know, use those things to make the jump. And so I kind of tend to still think that way. So you know, start a scene with something sharp that gets the attention of the reader and, and makes some kind of point and focuses their attention on something. It's not just bland and diffuse, you know. It's not, here's a room, here's a room, yeah, and there's a door, and in the door's a guy. Start with something arresting, something sharp that asks a question, you know, that then the reader is taking through and lead them into a scene rather than just kind of dump it all in front of them, I suppose. Uh so yeah, starting on dialogue. I mean, dialogue is king, really. Dialogue is the most important thing in a book. I think, you know, you can some really great writers, Elmore Leonard's one I think of, who can kind of just do this great long exchanges without any descriptors. It's pure dialogue, totally pure dialogue. No, he said, she said nothing. But you can tell who's speaking because the dialogue's so distinctive and so carefully kind of assembled and so full of personality that you're never in any doubt who's talking. And that's kind of the gold standard, I think, for me. Because um, a good line of dialogue, you know, it advances the plot. It tells you something about the person who's speaking, about the person they're speaking to, about the relationship between them. You can achieve so much, you know, in a conversation, so much more in a conversation than you can kind of just laying it out in a, in a dull way. And, you know, hopefully it can be funny and, and sharp and profound and all those things, you know. So, yeah, great dialogue is essential for me anyway would you say that's the main way you try to keep the writing process enjoyable for yourself because like having written how many novels have you published now it would be like 14 13 or so i'm writing the 14th now yeah 14th nice that's Uh, if you if you count the short stories so it's 30 novels yeah so like i guess one of the things i'm very interested in is like how do you keep the process enjoyable as you get like further into the career and there's a few yeah. things you've talked about that like are interesting to me because you say, you know, you try to view writing as just, you know, 
manual labor, just putting blocks down, which I agree with. I think that's a great way of looking at it rather than thinking it's this mystical magic thing. And then you've also said you try to make sure that you're not writing stuff that bores yourself. So how do you, uh, you know, how do you try to keep it interesting and how do you enjoy the process while you're, you know, working on your 14th book? With some difficulty, if I'm honest. <laughs> sure. Um, I think certainly they kind of say everyone has one book in them and that may be true, but one book's not a career, at least yes. not for most writers. So, you know, with fantasy writers, probably we have one series in us, one trilogy, whatever it may be, you know. I wanted to write my version of Lord of the Rings, basically. And then I did that and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> like, What's it was next? a hobby. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was a hobby that, you know, I was doing while I was doing other things in a way. And so it was fun. It was what I did at night for amusement. And uh, then you write it and maybe you publish it and suddenly you've got to write something else. <laughs> and, you know, that's a bit of a shocking moment because, you know, at least for me, when I was writing my first trilogy, I got better and better at it. I got faster and faster. I got very fast towards the end of it. Um. I was writing two or 3,000 words a day. I was just smashing it out. And they were good as well because I'd kind of had all the voices there, the characters were there, everything was set up to be knocked down, easy peasy, right? And I thought, I'm brilliant at this now. I'll write 3,000 words a day for the rest of my life. I'll be writing six books a year. And then, of course, I got to my fourth book and suddenly I just didn't know what I was doing at all. Uh, every time. Every time. New characters, new settings. And, and also, you know, I think... You kind of, with your first book, your first series, you kind of use up a lot of inspiration and ideas and ways of looking at the world that you have developed during your life. The stuff that's in easy reach, the types of characters that feel natural, the situations, the themes, you know, you use them. And so you don't have that well to draw on when you come to write something else. It's suddenly the well runs dry and you're a bit like, uh, what am I going to do now? now? So I think deeper. Yeah, you really have to reach further, but I think also, you know, a certain degree craft kind of comes to compensate for that that slight loss of inspiration. We're probably I think as writers often you're best known for your first books, or first book, and that remains the case because you know, that's how people first encounter your voice, that's when it's it's most kind of luminous and exciting. And you spend your whole career sort of trying to recapture that a lot of the time, hmm. which is a bit sad to say, perhaps. <laughs> not, not that you don't write other good stuff, not that no one ever writes amazing books later in a career and so on, but um, there's a certain kind of exuberance and freedom often about a first book that is hard to recapture as you are published and read and it becomes a profession and you second-guess yourself a lot more and you're subjected to scrutiny and, and you know that is kind of is tough when it becomes your main work it is work in the end as well you know and with all the pressures that entails and so sometimes it's not it's not easy to make progress you know i i find for myself that every book is kind of hard work and i always slightly forget how hard work the last book was <laughs> i find the first draft is grueling you know the start is usually good because you know, it's exciting and new and you're like, whoa, new characters, new stuff. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and then you get through the start and suddenly it becomes a slog and you're kind of staring at the word count all day. Mm. <laughs> Another hundred words. And I can, yeah. I can play video games. I can play Elden <laughs> Ring. Twitter for five Once minutes. I've got 600 words out. 
Exactly. <laughs> and then it turns um, into 50. Yeah. Yeah. So it's important to kind of try and maintain a bit of a workmanlike attitude to it. But it's, it's some, some days are tough and you've got to not beat yourself up too much. you just got to say, well, you know, you have a bad days, you have good days. You try and make a steady, reasonable progress. Then once I've got to the end of the first draft, usually that's the moment I say, ah, this is not as bad as I thought it was. <laughs> There's probably a book in here if I can just pare the nonsense away. And so then you start working through discuss it with editors and other people, you know, who have sage advice to give and new new viewpoints to take on it. And then, you know, come up with a plan of pairing it away and making it work a bit better, you know, making the plot work better, making the arcs of the characters make sense, you know, deciding who they need to be. And uh, then bodge it around a bit and reshape it. And before you know it, you've got a kind of pretty decent second draft and then you can refine that and then it gets more and more fun, I find, as you're refining and improving. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss wow nice yeah what you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on bomba socks underwear and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds yeah that plush and the best part for every item you purchase bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. That second draft is hard work and really important work, but isn't the most fun for me because that's when you go from, I've got a load of junk that might be something to, I've got a book that I like, hopefully. And, uh, then you can refine it further and further in in other ways, but uh, yes, that's sort of my have, process. Panic. Have you for ever a year written one? Sort it out in three months. <laughs> have you ever written sure. a book that you've you've got to sort of the end, and rather than that sort of thing where you're like, ah, oh, there is a book in here somewhere. Have you ever got to the point where you just like you're reading through it after you've written it and gone, nah, this is just trash? Because <laughs> we um we had. Uh, <laughs> Brian Stavely. Have you read my book? Um, fucking dead. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we had, uh, we had Brian Stavely on a while on. back, and he was telling us uh, that he'd, he'd basically he'd written a book, and it got to the point where he was submitted it to, uh, I think it was his editor, and his agent just came back to him and went, "You can't submit this. It's not good." Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I, I I know I've been through a similar thing where I've written a book before, and I, I I knew it was trash. I sent it to my alpha readers, and they came back and just went, "No, no, it's terrible." So just wondering if if you've ever had a sort of similar situation. Not quite like that. I mean, not not reach that point of having a finished book and thinking, "Oh God, this this is this is crap." I mean, I've I've certainly felt in the midst of a draft, this is bad, this is going to be a disaster. And I think best of cold for me particularly, because that was sort of my difficult second album in a way. You know, I'd I'd written mm-hmm. a a trilogy of same characters, same story, and so that was really one big book. Um, and then starting a new thing, you know, really felt directionless and not sure what the hell I was doing and and again first part I was kind of fine and then I started to meander a bit and then I really found it, it started to get longer than I was planning than I'd ever planned it as well which didn't help felt like I was losing control of it felt like it was going to be terrible and uh, you know would be career ending disaster really because I'd never had that experience before mm. you know I'd started writing the first law for fun I'd written a book just sitting around to entertain myself, not cared really whether it was good or bad, particularly. It was just an experiment, a laugh, you know? And um, so with this, it was a very different set of circumstances. You know, there was some expectation, had a new deal to service, publisher to keep happy. And I'd not had that experience of just thinking, this is really bad. I don't know what I'm going to do, you know? I hadn't realized that every book feels like that. (laughs) Up to a point. Some are better than others, you know. Some are certainly better than others. But, you know, knowing that in a way helps because you think, God, this is terrible, this is really bad. But I thought that last time and it turned out okay. So maybe this will turn out okay. And the more you do it, the more things seem to turn out okay. And so you kind of accept that it can be a grind. But I think generally, by the time I've finished the first draft, I've always felt, okay, okay, I see what I've got to do now. Not so much... This is brilliant. I was wrong. I am a genius. Not that. <laughs> but kind of, okay, I get it. I see what works. I see what doesn't. And often I find that, you know, I kind of converge on a point of what the book is. So the early parts, you know, I write it one part at a time and usually discuss it with my editor one part at a time as well. The first couple of parts are usually quite a mess. And sometimes the characters aren't really quite what they become by the end but by the last part I've kind of understood what I'm doing I've discussed each part as I've gone along with my editor. I've sort of said maybe this is working maybe this isn't she's given some ideas said what she likes what she doesn't like and I kind of take all that on as I go and so by the time I get to that last part usually I kind of pretty good idea what I'm doing so the last part's pretty close to what I want and then it's really going back and rewriting the early parts of it so there's, there's always a lot of work to do but I've never felt like it was unsalvageable. No. Hmm. Not so far. Of course, there's still time. <laughs> because I have a well, hugely I mean, long and successful career ahead of me. If it makes you feel any better, Best of Cold is still my favourite of your novels. Well, thank you. There we go. What's wrong with the other ones? <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, no, I mean, th- thanks. Uh, it, well, one thing that I kind of take some pride in is that no one generally, people don't, 
much agree on what is mm. my best book and what isn't because I try to do something a bit different each time. It's that difficult thing of split, you know, threading the needle between giving people what they want and expect and giving something new. Because, you know, the little people, they don't know what they want. They need us to tell them. They need us to tell Having them what they the want. Age of madness, I can totally agree with that statement. They, they always they say they, they want the same thing as last time, but what they mean <laughs> is they want something indefinably different from last time and yes. yet somehow kind of similar. And so you've got to try and do different stuff each time. And luckily, that, that does mean inevitably some people will like, you know, your old books more than your new. But hopefully some will like your new books more than your old. So I'm kind of proud of the fact that there's a pretty even spread mm. yeah. across my books of people who like one thing or, or another. From what I've seen, yeah. I even, yeah, I don't know. I even find it hard. I think this speaks to the quality of your characterization in the books in general is like, as I was reading through the age of madness in each book, I had a different character who I was like, yes, this is definitely going to be the best character in the series. And then the next book it changes. And every time I was like, no, 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 this character is definitely the best. And looking back on it now, I'm like, yeah, I just can't pick one. Like they all do very different things while still like having that, I don't know, essential complexity and compellingness to them that makes them, exciting and yeah i guess that's sort of what you know you're aiming to try to do with your books in general right is like you want to have enough of the same stuff between them that people who like one book are going to continue to the others and and read and enjoy them but ideally each of them is playing like a different game so that it's not so much a competition it's more just like you know one book is running the 100 meter sprint and another one is doing the javelin throw and another one is doing high jump so they're all entertaining for like different reasons yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you've you kind of different characters have landed. I mean, I think as well, you're probably trying in the course of a series to kind of have an ebb and flow where, you know, some characters move to the fore at some points and others are more involved in the story. Others, well, you mm. know, some fade back and forth and there's kind of, you know, someone have the the climax of a, of a plot line at one point, you know, while others aren't really involved and then others will kind of step in later. And that's something I've kind of learned to do better over time to kind of plan and shape it so there's you know the right tension the right sense of things building up and calming down and building up again as you as you go um but it's good that characters should kind of you know change and surprise you a little bit and and you know ones that you weren't sure about should do things you like and ones that you thought you liked should disappoint and upset you disappointing and upsetting the reader is really my bag (laughs) (laughs) every tear they drop onto the book extends your life by another month i've heard so the rumor goes i was gonna ask actually um yeah on the note of kind of it being more fun in a sense to write the books when you had a day job do you find did you find that like holding on to the freelance book editing sorry the freelance video editing for a while into your career was beneficial for that because i like, at what point did you totally stop doing that? It wasn't like after the first book, right? It was a, it was a couple of books in. No, no, not at all. I mean, enormously beneficial. I was, very, I was kind of really lucky. If I hadn't done that job, I might never have started writing in a way because the nature of that work is that you'll do, you know, a, I was working on documentaries mostly and some kind of live music stuff and things. So you might have a six-week job on a documentary and then, you know, you might have two or three weeks off and then a couple of weeks on a concert 
straight into another six weeks on documentary, then a week or two off. Nothing ever sits exactly together. So you, you end up with quite a lot of time off, even in a busy year, you might work mm. 40 weeks. And so you, you've got a lot of weeks where you're not really doing anything often. And, you know, I spent about three or four years playing computer games solidly in that <laughs> nice. time. Total War and so on. A lot of time spent playing that. Uh, and then I felt like, oh, man, I really need a project that's going to, you know, be of value. And because being an editor, you know, leaves you at the mercy of directors a lot. It's a great job, but it's not really, you're not the originator. You're not the kind of, you don't make the final call on stuff. I felt like it would be nice to do something that I kind of control creatively. So I thought, oh, I'll pick up that that shit book that I wrote when I was uh, 20 and have another go. And that's kind of why I started, you know. And so I wrote in weeks off, I wrote in evenings and so on and got really into it and, and wrote actually quite fast after a certain time. Um, but then once I did get a, a deal, which took a while, um, it wasn't like a life-changing amount of money. There was no possibility of of becoming a full-time writer on, on the advance I was getting for, even though I'd got like two books already written. Um, but it meant I could take it more seriously, you know, and commit a, a more time to it. And kind of, I was very lucky. I didn't have to storm out of the office and say, I'm bigger <laughs> than you now. <laughs> Fuck you insurance. <laughs> I'm no longer going to do this job. Just piss I'm on a the writer. office plants, you know, exactly. Throw yeah. some desks. Uh, yeah. Throw some desks around. I could just take a few less jobs fewer jobs, do the jobs I wanted. And so I kind of just worked 30 weeks a year or then then scaled it gradually back, worked for mm. fewer and fewer clients. And I was really lucky from that point of view. So about five years probably from getting a deal to more or less giving up the editing. And then I moved out of London, which kind of made the call for me in a way because I was too far away from where a lot of the work was happening to really do the work then. So by that point, I was basically a full-time writer. Uh, it took a long time. And as you say, the weird thing is that I didn't necessarily increase my speed of writing. In fact, if anything, I got slower sure. as I, when I first became full-time because it was a totally new experience. And I still find, actually, I'm more productive when I've got other nonsense going on than when I have mm. all the day just to sit there. I kind of constantly moan and complain, leave me alone. I need this day to focus on my art. But in fact, I'm better working in the time in between other stuff, weirdly. It's a different method of working. Sorry, like, I, know, I know some people who work best in like bursts. They'll, they'll do sort of half an hour and then they'll go and do something else for a half hour. Whereas, yeah. yeah, I find that if I'm just sat there for the entire day, quite often I'll be like, oh, I'll just, yeah, I'll load up some social media. And I, I it's kind of like, I think your brain needs a break, but you're not, not willing to, to, to give it one, whereas you really should. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think, I think it can definitely work better if you just sort of do it in bursts. Yeah, I mean, I just find there's times when I'm really into a book, which are glorious. Often it's a series like, you know, say The Age of Madness recently, the first book took longer than the other two mm. combined. So, you know, the first book took quite a long time to do and was slow and difficult but by the time I got to the second one I, I it took me I think I wrote I wrote The Trouble With Peace and Wisdom of Crowds in a little bit over a year both together which is insanely fast for me that's awesome yeah yeah I mean that was like 
They're pretty that was like 10, 15,000 words a week, which is oh, so good. ludicrously fast. Yeah. I'm down to about 5,000 at the moment, if that. Oh, that's so very reassuring to hear. Because <laughs> that's yeah, where yeah. I'm at the moment. <laughs> it, did, it wildly changes depending on the project and what else is going on and just mm. who knows why. Awesome. Well, I think we'll, we'll probably put a pause there and continue with part two uh, in next week's episode. So, Joe, thanks for coming on uh, for this part one. This has been an absolute blast. And um, well, thank you. yeah, we'll, we'll see all of you or next week on the audio or video feeds. Bye, everybody. Bye. Ciao. Thank you for listening or watching to this episode of Wizards, Warriors and Words. If you like what we're doing here and you would help, like to help support the show, please go to patreon.com forward slash wizards, warriors, and words. And for a monthly subscription, you can get access to bonus episodes that you can't find anywhere else. Currently, we have five bonus episodes up there and we're going to be adding more in the future. So you can check that out. The link is down below if you would like to have a look. And a special thanks to our high tier patrons, Talon, Daniel, and Lewis. Thank you for helping support the show. We'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.